Hey, welcome back to Be You Podcast. This is your host, Jill Herman. Today is a unique experience. I am really, really, really proud and honored to introduce you to Renette Senum, who is running for California governor in the 2022 election. So many of our listeners are not in California and not even in the United States. Why should you care about this conversation? Well, so much of it has nothing to do with politics. One thing that you may not be aware of is how the election in California will impact you no matter where you are in the world. And the reason for that is revealed in this conversation with Renette. But that that is an absolute true statement. You know, whatever side you lean on, whatever side you identify with, if you identify with either the right or the left in the United States, you know, we've got the right and the left, the conservatives, the, the liberals, the Democrats, the Republicans, so many names and labels. Essentially, it's a two-party system. And we have a woman who is choosing to run as an independent, meaning not as one or the other. Now, that alone is pretty remarkable considering the way it always goes in the state of California. So it's very courageous of her. And at the same time, she sees no other way to do it. And I happen to agree with this. She says that the only way for her to truly serve the people of California is to make sure everybody knows that she's not loyal to a political party. She's loyal to them. Renette is so passionate about medical freedom. She's so passionate about mothers and children. I know we have a lot of mama bears listening to this podcast. And Renette is fighting for children. You're going to hear one of the best storytellers you've ever heard. When she shares her story, you know, you feel like you're right there while she's sharing the story. And this is like a story you've never heard before. Her life alone is such an interesting tale of grit and perseverance, passion, determination, being your authentic self, like truly being yourself, even at a young age. So on one hand, I'm just excited for you to hear her story. That alone, you will take into your life. And I promise you, it will ignite something in you. It will be so refreshing and also confronting and challenging. And I guarantee, guarantee that you will hear something in this conversation just about her life story that will cause you to say, okay, I need more of that. I deserve more of that. You might listen to this conversation and it may spark something in you that you didn't even know was alive or wanted to come alive. And I also am happy to have this airing because I do want people are unaware of what's happening in the state of California to understand why it's important that they know. Why does it impact them? How could it impact the economy in their country? How could it impact all of humanity? Why are things that we're seeing in California happening the way they are? Why are such powerful people with so much money trying to stop Renette from running and from winning? Why is she being censored? Why was her account on Instagram deplatformed? There's a reason. Because she's speaking truth. Because she is saying and sharing information that resonates with all of us. And it doesn't belong to a political party. Because truth is truth. We talk a lot on BU about, you know, getting into your body and healing and releasing trauma and stories and limiting beliefs so that we can better tune into our intuition, that gut check. And as you listen to her sharing what's happening in California and what's happening politically, what's happening in the world today, and why she's stepping up and choosing to do something so difficult, it's going to resonate with that part of you that knows truth when you hear it. Now, this isn't me trying to convince anyone that they should vote for Renette or encourage other people to vote for Renette. I truly believe that when you hear this episode, you will get why she's running and why California and the world 
as a result, deserves to be one of the two candidates who wins in the primary, which is starting soon. So her name is on that ballot in November. It's so important, I believe, that we have someone who is not bought and paid for, who is not owned by anyone, and who's willing to stand up and fight for freedom and for truth. Renette Senham is a natural-born leader. She's traveled to nearly 60 countries and has an incredible ability to connect to those around her, no matter where she is or who she's speaking with. In 1994, she crossed Alaska by herself. It would be during this isolated winter solo track, which she filmed for National Geographic, that she learned of all things the power of community. Ultimately, lessons learned along the trail would become the catalyst for her community work later in life. She has protested against corruption and greed for decades. She has twice served as the mayor and city council member of her hometown, Nevada City, California, where she served with integrity regardless of how difficult the political landscape was. And man, was it difficult. It was during the summer of 2020 that Renette chose to step down from her third term on the city council because she saw a deep need for leadership at a much larger scale than she could provide in her little town. The people of California are pleading, and I will say the people of the United States are pleading for trustworthy, common sense leadership. And that is who she is. Renette is currently running for California governor with no party affiliation and the first child-centric campaign ever. Please welcome Renette Senum. There is nothing more inspiring than a woman being unapologetically herself. The answers are all in your heart. She's waiting, she's waiting, she's waiting for you to set her free. Welcome to BU Podcast. I'm Jill Herman, and I am so glad you're here. I was broke, insecure, and craved approval. But with grit, hustle, and sacrifice, I still built a successful multi-million dollar business. 10 years in, burnout, I slowed down and looked inward. In that silence, I discovered that the same level of success could have come to me with much less effort and so much more joy. That's when I threw out the expectations of the world and chose to unbecome every single thing I thought I was supposed to be. And the real me was uncaged. It was far from easy. And in this podcast, I'll offer my entire journey as a roadmap so that if you're ready, you can finally be you. Okay, so here I am sitting down with, and I'm so excited about this, with Renette Senna running for governor of California 2022. Thank you so much for being with us and welcome to Be You. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Jill. So I've bragged about you actually to many people, and I just discovered you a few months ago. You know, I live in Indiana. Those of you in other countries, I'm in the Midwest in the U.S., and Renette is in California. And you might wonder, why was I so excited to have her on BU Podcast? And one of the many reasons is because she embodies what we talk about every week on BU, which is being her authentic self and continuing to discover who that is every day going forward. And doing it unapologetically and finding who you really are and also using that to pay it forward and to teach, even if it's uncomfortable, even if you get darts thrown at you, even if there's opposition, you're just so courageous and so bold and such a badass. And I'm, I'm, I'm seriously a huge fan and I just found you and I, man, if I were in California, I know who I'd be voting for. So (laughs) I would love to start with this. There's so much I want them to hear about you. I would love to start with this, because remember, we have people who have no idea what's going on in California. So can we start first, a little backwards, before we talk about you, I'd like to talk about lay the land, give everyone the lay of the land. What is going on in California right now? And why should people who don't even live there wake up to that? What most people don't realize, and I would include Californians in this, is that we have an upcoming primary election where we will be choosing our governor for California for the next four years. The primary is the first election of two elections, right? We have a primary in May, and then we have a general election in November. And how it works here in California is the top two vote getters basically then go off to the November general election. 
And in California, it's called an open primary. That means you can vote for any political party candidate, right? Except for president. President's when you have to have that party affiliation. Well, here in California, we're in the front lines. And there's been a mass exodus of people moving out of California. It's gotten really ugly over the last quite a few years now. And we seem to have lost the rule of law and absolute government representation. And people are exhausted, they're tired, they're frustrated, they're worried, they're concerned, and they're squeezed. And people aren't making ends meet any longer. And people are worried for their children, and they're worried about their bodily autonomy, having a choice and control over their body and medical treatments. And while the rest of the world has been, to a certain degree, opening up, California legislators have been throwing a barrage of bills at Californians, and they, under the Emergency Use Act, or state of emergency, I should say, they have been really ramrodding a lot of draconian extreme bills that do not represent Californians and their desire or will. And so uh, it seems that our legislators are taking advantage of this time and period to serve somebody or something else. We don't know what, but it's not the people. And so, as you know, there's a mass exodus out of California. People are just leaving in droves. They can't afford to live here any longer. They can't keep their, their, their businesses open because of the taxation, because of the cost of living, because of the cost of food and gas prices. I mean, $5.50, $6 a gallon is nothing unusual now in California. And people are also very concerned about their children and their psychological, emotional well-being. And so there's this mass exodus. In fact, I have a lot of friends who are holding off on moving out of the state to see how the primary election goes. I have no doubt that I will be doing well. If I don't make it through the primary, there's going to be another mass exodus and people around the states are going to be upset with me <laughs> because I've not prevented more Californians from, from leaving California. And this is the thing, Jill, is I say to people, we have everything we need in California. We are the fifth to sixth largest economy in the world. We have every resource you can imagine. We have the creativity, the willpower, the desire. We have everything we need. The one and only thing that we are lacking is the leadership. And I'm aiming to change that. I know you are. And, and so just to make sure we're all understanding, and, I, and this is for me too, I know there's still people who it's hard for them to wrap their mind around. Could it really be that bad? Will you give a couple of examples that, that I'm pretty sure will shock them? Like, like what about the open drug use, the homelessness? Well, you know, I've traveled a lot. I've traveled around 60 countries around the world, Europe, Africa, South America, and so on. And I have people saying, you go to Los Angeles, you go to San Francisco, it's a third world. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's not a third world. It's apocalyptic. It's apocalyptic. It's not unusual to see a 12-year-old dealing drugs on the street openly, right? It's not, it's not unusual to walk out of a store and someone defecating in front of you. It's not unusual to see block after block after block of, of encampment of, and we're calling them the homeless or the houseless. This is not a homeless situation at this point in time in California. There's 160,000 people in crises. This is a humanitarian crisis. And... I know what a homeless looks like, and this is not a homeless issue. And this is, you know, how do we out of 40 million Californians not be able to house 160,000 people? And these are grandparents and parents and at one time productive people and young people who are trying to start their lives. And, and once you're in that environment of homelessness, it's extraordinarily difficult to get out of it. So the only way we can bring an end to it is to get them out of the environment that's keeping them in the first place. And so it's, it's surreal. It's, it's apocalyptic. It's surreal. And you can't escape it. And it's like a cancer. So I have people who are saying, well, I'm leaving California. I'm out of here. But folks, I have to tell you something. If California falls, the rest of the nation is going to follow. This is a cancer and it's going to metastasize. Do not think for one second that California can fall and not impact the rest of the United States and even the rest of the world. And if we cannot stop this here, it's going to be hard for, for everyone else. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you said that. There are people in the U.S. who I know personally 
either they're conservatives or they live in the Midwest or in the South. And they're like, they, they think of California as Hollywood. Like California is a lot bigger and a lot. <laughs> it's not Hollywood. That Hollywood happens to be there. And it's so powerful and it's so important. And, you know, when you mentioned a minute ago about children, you know, we have a lot of mothers who listen to this podcast. I personally, where I live, I was definitely, um, I rubbed a lot of people the wrong way when I voiced my very strong opinion about masking toddlers and masking children. I, in the beginning, no one, no one knew what was happening. I was scared too. And I was masking up and my kids couldn't go anywhere. And I was the mom, the, the mean mom wouldn't let them leave. And then as I was a registered nurse for a long, long time, and as let me correct myself. I was only privy to a certain amount of information. I know you were privy to more information, but just the little bit that I was seeing, I'm like, something is not right here. This isn't adding up. And there's no science to support why we are putting masks on these children. So I was so against it, pulled my son out of school, my youngest, and saw many friends trapped. They had to either mask their children or quit their job. So will you just share a little bit about how it's opening up everywhere else, but what's happening in California? I try to explain to people that we are in a war and it's very much disinformation and psychological warfare. And that's really hard for people to hear. And I understand because it sounds scary, but there's a game that's played. And what I I recommend people do is when they get done with this podcast, as they go out there and they look up, please don't go on Google, go on Brave or, or DuckDuckGo or a different search search engine, but go and check out what's called Biderman's, B-I-D-E-R-M-A-N-S, Biderman's Chart of Coercion. And you see the top eight steps it takes to coerce a person, right? To make them capitulate. It's what is used. It's a method, eight steps that are used on prisoners of war. And the first step is isolation and then humiliation and then arbitrary laws, arbitrary enforcement, omnipotence, like I've got my mask, you don't you realize that this is what we've been subjected to for nearly two years now. And what's happening is the rest of the world, part of coercing people is that you can't do a continuous squeeze and squeeze and squeeze because people will revolt. You have to squeeze, let up, squeeze a little bit more, let up, squeeze a little bit more, let up, squeeze it, you know, until finally you're just, you're in a complete chokehold. So what's happening is around the world and around the country, we are loosening up. But while the rest of the world and other states are, are loosening up here in California, what they're doing is there's there's this barrage of legislation, as I mentioned before, that's very draconian, absolutely outrageous, absolutely outrageous. We can get into details if you want. And what is going to happen in my, if I had a little crystal ball, I would say what's going to happen is that you're going to see in the next month or so, two months after elections pass, that all of a sudden we're going to have an uptick in these these cases. They're going to have to start clamping down again, more masks, stay at home, close businesses, schools, and so on. And then what's going to happen is they're, all these different states are going to turn to California and say, oh, and by the way, look at what California has done. And these last few months, they've now passed legislation that's really draconian, and we'll just model after them. So what's happening is they're loosening up everywhere else, and they've even loosened up here in California to a certain extent, but the legislation is still going full throttle ahead, and it's extraordinarily draconian. It's frightful, as a matter of fact, and there has been a lot of public pushback that has stopped bills. They have not completely killed the bills. They've just said, okay, we're going to set them aside for now. They're not completely dead, but there's been so much pushback. They're like, they've like said, okay, we're, we're stopping. We're just going to like, you know, set this, this bill aside, but they're not killing the bill, right? So they can still go out there in the middle of the night and pass these bills um, when the public's not looking. And so this is a setup at the net is what I call it, right? They're setting the ball up at the net and, and they're ready to spike it over. And so it's the methodology that's being used and it's very dangerous. It's hard to sense because it kind of creeps into your life little by little by little. And then the next thing you know, you feel like you can't breathe anymore because basically you can't. And it's a global game. It's a global game completely. Mm. So not understanding how any of that works, truly, I'm going to ask a question that I bet you some people are, are wanting to ask. Sure. And that is, how can any governor do what we've seen done in California? Like, how has that happened? It appears to me, I mean, not knowing anything about how it really works, that doesn't look lawful. It looks tyrannical. Don't you have to have so many steps to pass these laws and all of a sudden it's just declared? It's 100%. No, this is, this is why I'm running for governor for California is because I want to return the rule of law. 
I want to make sure that people um, understand how legislation and bills and laws are made. The first time that I really went extremely public against Governor Newsom was in uh, June of 2020 when he did the statewide mass mandate. And I was shocked by this because a governor, one person, does not have the unilateral power to put medical devices on everyone's face. And he he attempted to do that. And I was one of the <laughs> elected officials at that time that really called him out and said, this is, you don't have this authority. And I even went down to our police chief because at that time I was mayor of this little town called Nevada City, California, Northern California. And I went down to our mayor and I said, are you planning you know, on enforcing this mass mandate? And this is what I'm asking the police chief. And he says, well, I don't know how it doesn't come with a penal code. You can't enforce something without a penal code. And the only way you get a penal code is if you go through a legislative process and that legislative process takes months. A bill has to be authored, right? It has to be reviewed. It goes for different committees. Sometimes it has to go back to the author and then it goes again. And then ultimately it ends up at the governor's desk and then the desk can veto, pass it or just do nothing, which automatically basically makes it pass. So, You know, at this point in time, he is, Governor Newsom is absolutely overstepping his authority. He is acting like a tyrant. Uh, A lot of people are allowing him to do this because they're so afraid. And what's happened is under this, you know, state of emergency, they have also reduced the whole entire legislative process of, of making bills, And so what they can do and they do with a lot of these bills is to say, well, instead of going through the three committees, they usually go. uh, Instead, we're going to have it be reviewed by one committee and we're going to fast track it. And the other thing is, is at times, and this happened last summer where I would go to the Capitol and I would go in to, you know, speak uh, against a certain bill and the Capitol was completely empty. Nobody was there. The halls were empty. And I'm doing a live stream saying, where is everybody? This is a really important bill. And where is everybody? Well, guess what? Everyone's home, afraid. Their bandwidth is stretched. And they are so exhausted that and just so overwhelmed, they can't, they don't feel like they they have it in them to fight any longer. And this too is by design. You just exhaust people until they just can't fight. Well, now I have to say there are a lot of individuals a lot of organizations who are really, really, like I said, there's about 10, 12 horrific bills. And there are a lot of organizations and people who are realizing that these legislators are trying to push these bills through really, really fast, hoping that nobody will pay attention. And of course, as I was saying, they're basically putting the ball up the net. So if they can get these bills through right now, when people are tired and not paying attention, and then when, let's say, come fall in time and elections have passed and they can start locking down again, and California has set this standard in legislation and bills, they've won. So people are waking up to this. I do believe the powers that be, whoever they are, have overplayed their hand. I tell people we have won this war. We have absolutely won this war. The dark will not prevail. But the question is, How long will this war take? Six months or 60 years? That's where we come in. Mm -hmm. So many people are waking up. And I know you know this, so I hope you'll receive this compliment. And people are waking up because of people like you, because you've been courageous and you've been loud. (laughs) That's what it takes, right? And um, I heard you saying on another interview, talked about, you know, waking the bear. And I just love, love, love that uh, metaphor. Okay, so I would like to have you share, ask you to share a story. I will admit I've heard the story already, but to me, it is such a beautiful illustration of who you are at the core. You know, I I think when we look at at politicians, people who are either new to politics or have been a politician for years, anywhere in that world, we see them and then we want to like check a box. Do they stand for this? Do they stand for this? Do I like them? Do they seem personal? Right. And I feel like that's how people campaign. But with you, there's so much richness and substance that I've heard just in just a few little places I've looked that I thought, I want people who will never be able to vote for you in other states and other countries to hear this. And here's why I'll say this. Because what you stand for is something for, for all of us, for all of humanity, that we can take from this one interview right? And pay it forward wherever we live. So I would love, this is going to be a big loaded question. I would love for you to share the story of your journey down the Yukon River. There's a lot here. Just discovering who your great grandfather was, 
<laughs> there's so much of there. That little bit right there is so rich and beautiful. And to me, illustrates beautifully who you are and, and, and why people are standing behind you. Well, um, thank you for that. So, well, yes. And th- this, this campaign, and I tell people, you know, I'm running a political campaign, but this campaign supersedes politics and election cycles. And it's really about launching a cultural, spiritual shift within California itself. And it is really much based upon and inspired by my own personal experience of legacy and my own personal search. And what that story is, is that I was born in San Francisco in 66, adopted at a couple months old by a truck driver, a teamster truck driver father, a registered nurse mother. And when we were about four years old, we moved up here to Nevada County, California, um, bought a piece of property, and I began being raised up here. And when I was 11, I did have a, a great aunt of my adoptive mother come from England, and she had this incredible family tree that went back 900 years. And I was just so enamored with it, and I love history. And I was just eating it up. And then it dawned on me, it wasn't my blood. You know, this is my family, no doubt. But it was like, well, this isn't my blood. This isn't, you know, in my DNA. And so I asked my mother, well, when do I, when do I get to find out, you know, my family tree? And my adoptive mother said, well, no, you, you can't know that it's illegal because at the time in California, adoption files were not opened. And so I was shocked by this, even as an 11-year-old, this seemed very unjust. And as the magic of life would have it, uh, the next day in a local newspaper, there was a story about these um, you know, adoptees looking for their birth parents and birth mothers, and there was five addresses to these research organizations. So I very quietly wrote down the addresses, and I wrote off a little letters. Of course you did. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> I just love it. Right? <laughs> You know, and I wrote off and I gave them the return address to my best friend. And because I knew my adoptive mother would not be very happy with this. And I said, here's my non-identifying information. It's very general information. And, and you know, and basically within a week's time, these, these adoption research organizations got back to me and said, look at, you know, unfortunately, because of your age, we can't do anything for you legally until you're 18 years old. And from the information you've given us, you have time. Your mom's young. You're young. Don't worry. You have time. Well, they didn't know, I didn't know, but my my natural mother actually was fighting breast cancer at that time, and she would uh, die at the age of 35, about a year later. And my adoptive mother would find out, because my, my adoptive brother actually ratted on me, and when she found this out, she was very, very upset. It was really quite sad. And she blurted to me, "You're just so you know, your name is Marcella Anderson, and I almost fell backwards, because I just thought, oh, I had a, a different name? It never dawned on me. And then my adoptive mother, too, became sick with cancer, and she would die at 19 years old. And our relationship never recovered. There was always a rift. It was very sad. And I became her sole caregiver while she was dying. And she never told me the truth, which was she lied to me. <laughs> my name was not Marcella Anderson. The, the first name was right, but the last name was not correct. And so I continued to look and look and look for the Andersons, and I couldn't find them. It's like my family had disappeared because I was looking for the wrong people, the wrong name. And so now, by this time, after my adoptive mother died, I went traveling around the world, almost 60 countries, $10 a day, Europe, Africa, South America, really just after watching my adoptive mother die, I realized, you know, you've got to go live because life is short. So I went and, and really in many ways went to go live for my own mother. And I um, came back in my 20s and I heard about these men and women who were putting together a South Pole expedition to ski to the South Pole and they were training. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're still doing that kind of stuff. So I... I jumped on the team and filled out the application. And, and I have to tell you, <laughs> of course, when I was applying, they did ask questions like, well, you know, how long have you been skiing? And I'm like, well, I've been skiing for, for 15 years, which I thought was very impressive for my age. But they were talking cross-country skiing and I was talking water skiing. <laughs> and then they asked questions like, well, what are the coldest temperatures you've been exposed to? I'm like, well, I've been exposed to minus 10, which I think is pretty impressive for, for California. But I didn't tell them it was the walk-in freezer where I used to bag the ice at the local <laughs> grocery store where I used to work. So... On paper, I qualified, but I had never skied a day in my life. So I went out there and I learned and I kept falling my face and training and falling my face. And then I went and trained with the South Pole team. We went to Alaska and did, you know, glacier training and crevasse rescue training and cross country skiing training. And, and I had 10 months to raise $70,000 and I was not able to do it. So these men and women skied to the South Pole without me. And then I was very young and feisty back then. And like now, <laughs> and I decided, well, then fine, I'll, you know, I'm going to put together my own team and it's not going to be men and women. 
It's going to be women only. And we're not going to just ski to the South Pole. We're going to ski all the way across Antarctica. So I went and moved to Snowbird, Utah and organized the American Women's Trans-Antarctic Expedition. I'd never organized a camping trip. So this is another stretch. And I ended up getting the top outdoor women in the country on the team. Uh, Anne Bancroft, first woman to the North Pole with Will Steger in 86, these top Himalayan climbers. And I was just, I was in high heaven and we were training and planning. And and then the women said, well, Renette, you know, we've been doing this stuff for 15, 20 years and you are just starting. And they didn't like that. I was this little 20 some year old who was a co-leading a trans-Antarctic expedition. So they kicked me off the team and they went to the South Pole without me. So I was really depressed for a year, very depressed, almost almost ended it for myself because I thought, why bother dreaming if people can just steal your dreams like this? Why even bother? And then when I started coming out of it for a year, it took me like a year to really come out of it. I didn't have the emotional skills, maturity quite then like I do today. Now I have really thick skin. But at the time when I realized like, wait a second, when you started this, you didn't even know how to ski. And now I knew a sea pulley compared to a Z pulley. I knew crevasse rescue. I climbed McKinley and Rainier and Kilimanjaro. And, you know, I was an excellent skier. And I finally thought to myself, just go find something and cross it. So I grabbed the globes, looked at Siberia, looked at Greenland. And I thought, no, I'm going to go cross Alaska. I'd been there to climb Denali, you know, McKinley and plenty had plenty of challenge. So I thought, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go test yourself. You're going to go commercial fish up in Alaska. Because if you're not tough enough to commercial fish, you're not tough enough to cross Alaska. That's a great litmus test. And in the meantime, as you're fishing, you'll save up enough money to pay for the trip. No corporate sponsors, no base camp, no base camp manager. Just go do it. So I jumped a road on a tender boat from Seattle up to Alaska, walked the docks, got on a boat called the Big Valley, which I would find about 12 years later sink on a show called The Deadliest Catch with my captain and four of the crew members, they perished. Oh my and after six months of 20 hours a day, you know, seven days a week, the only woman on this particular boat, uh, it was pretty hellish. And, and I excelled. I actually did great. Sounds brutal and miserable. Yeah, it was. It was miserable. It was tough, but I loved it. I kind of ate it up. I know right? you did. I know you did. I, <laughs> I, just, I, I really, I did well. It's like I was in my element. And the crazier it got, the more I loved it, you know, in many ways, though I could have gotten thrown over a couple of times. So after six months, I saved up the money. And what had happened when I told the guys I was planning on crossing Alaska, they really wanted to break my spirit because they're like, no, no, no. Some, you know, green horn California chick is not going to cross our last frontier. So they really wanted to break me. And I was like, no, this is my dream. It has nothing to do with you. This is my dream. And they knew that if I left early, I wouldn't get my money. You've got to complete the, the, the season of fishing, right? To get your money. So I was, I was hell bent. I'm like, I'm not quitting. I'm not leaving. So once I was done with this though, I was done with humanity. I'm like, get me out of here. I'm done with you humans. You guys are horrific. So <laughs> it was the best rocket fuel. It was fantastic rocket fuel. So then I went to Homer, Alaska, just a hop, skip and a jump away from Kodiak Island and I um, was staying at a place, up a place called East End Road, and I was uh, helping a woman maintain her dogs. I was getting my sled together, my gear. I contacted National Geographic. They sent me a camera when they found I was crossing Alaska by myself. I had a neighbor, and I told him he was a Iditarod dog sled racer. And I said, hey, I'm going to attach two dogs to my waist and help them uh, pull me in my sled you know, across Alaska. And this guy named Jack Barry said, well, you know, I've got a couple of sled dogs that are retired, but they can certainly pull you across the state. So I started training with them five days a week, 12, 25 miles a day. And then I'm five, five days out before I leave for my trip and I'm ready. I'm geared up. I'm, tr I'm fit as a fiddle. And Jack Barry who owns these two dogs comes over to me and he says, I don't think you can do it. In fact, I think you're going to die before you make the first hundred miles. I'm taking the dogs back. And he walks away with the dogs. And he thinks if I don't have the dogs, I'm not going to do it now. Who's going to, you know, who's going to pull my sled? And he was doing it, I think, for a couple of reasons. One was he really was afraid for my life. He thought I was going to die. I mean, I'd be afraid for anybody doing this too, to be honest. <laughs> or, and I think also as a part of him going, oh my gosh, what if she really does do this trip? I mean, it's just, you know, there's some macho-ness in Alaska for sure. So as he's walking away with the dogs, I just feel this rage inside of me. Like how, and here's once again, Somebody trying to crush my dream. I just want to go off there and just pursue my dream. Please, everyone, leave me alone. <laughs> and so as he's walking away, I just yelled at him. And the only thing I can say was, fine, I'll pull the sled myself. And five days later at 55 Below, going down the frozen Yukon River, I was pulling that sled by myself without my two dogs. 
And ultimately, in a nutshell, you know, it was really extraordinarily intense. The snow was extremely dry. It was much colder and tougher than I thought it would be. And my sled was dragging with this uh, across the dry snow. So I was really sweating and perspiring. And within hours, my eyelids were getting weighed down with ice from the perspiration. I tried to slide the ice off and my all my eyelashes just snapped off immediately. And, and I was shocked by how intense it was. And and I got into my first 200 miles to my first village and I could handle the cold, but it was really the loneliness. The colder it gets, the more intense the loneliness. And so what I did ultimately is I met another dog musher and I said, look, it, I can handle the cold, but I need a dog. I, I, need, I need to think about something other than about how difficult this is. And so I had another trapper dog musher said, well, I got three dogs. I'm going to be shooting and killing this spring. They're not fast enough sled pullers because these guys out there have to go out there and actually catch the food for the dogs. And if the dogs don't perform, they'll put them down. It's a, it's a whole different world out there. And he said, you know, you can take one or three of those dogs. I don't care. So went to the first two dogs, they were so wild, they almost bit my hand off. And the last dog named Diamond, which was my birthstone, was sweet as could be, was on a chain and a pole for two years straight, being fed a half a salmon a day and kind of skinny and scrawny, but had great enthusiasm. So I attached him to my my waist and we started practicing. He could barely pull me a mile the first day. And I kept training with him for two weeks until finally we took off. And within a matter of a few days, that dog and I were, we were traversing 60 miles a day. Oh my and I say to people that that dog was pulling with its heart. It was just, he, trans, he transformed the whole trip. So the pivotal thing in this story is when, there's a few pivotal points in this story, but this one particular was when I was halfway across the state. And I'm now close to the Arctic Circle, skiing down from, I'm starting from the Canadian-Alaskan border, working my way down the Yukon River, kind of, you know, traversing northwest up to the Arctic Circle. And then uh, I look down at my feet and my heart goes into my throat because I'm looking at the frozen river and it has a thing called overflow. It's actually melting ahead of schedule. And I'm thinking, oh, no, this is my only road. I, I, I've been training and planning my gear. I mean. I, I have no other way to get across the state. And I'm thinking, now what do I do? And that's when I realized I, I had two options. I either give up or I, I find a different way to continue. That was it. That's my two options. So I stayed in the local uh, Athabascan native village. It was nearby. And the Athabascans were nice enough to actually clean out a little cabin for me to stay in while I was figuring out, do I give up? Do I come back? You know, pick up where I left off, you know, the, the, the year before, or do I just abandon the trip and... And again, in the magic of life, right, you have to go through certain doors in, for, in order for the other doors to open, right? So I couldn't see. I was like, I have no options. I have, I have no gear. I have no way to get. I, there's, there's no options. And as I'm walking in and out of the door of my cabin, there's a snowbank to the right of the door. And I'm looking at it. And I see this little thing sticking out. And it's, the snow's melting every day. I'm like, what is that? So I, I dig it out. And I pull out the last canoe built in this, this village 20 years before. But it's dilapidated. But I think to myself, that's it. That's what I'll do. I'll build myself a canoe. So I go to all the elders and I say, I'm going to build a canoe. I just need some tools. Hey, I'm I'm building a canoe. I, I'm going to build a canoe. And word got back, no, no, no. Women do not build canoes. That's just not what we do here. I had to go back to the elders and say, no, you don't understand. Um, where I come from in California, that's what women do. We're, we're canoe builders. That's our thing. <laughs> and and, and I, I'm sure there's a couple canoe builders somewhere in California, female canoe builders. And I was really speaking, I think, more to the spirit of California women. We, we can get yeah. some stuff done, right? We're, we're made we're for this. Fearless. Yeah. We're, we're fearless. And so uh, they lent me tools. I don't think they really knew what to do or how to respond. And so I, with my three new favorite Athabascan friends, we went out into the forest and I said, what kind of trees do I cut down? They said, as tall, straight as possible, bark that goes up and down, not sideways, as few limbs as possible. I cut these three trees. I dragged them into the village by my cabin. And now the elders were thinking, oh, she's going to really try to build this canoe. And I'm sure they thought I was going to peter out at some point. And then the elders actually uh, hire a volunteer, a gentleman by the name of Herb, a big bellied Athabascan, to have a fatherly talk with me. And he comes up to me. We sit down the log and we look over the, the frozen river. And he says, we call you Wonder Woman because of all the miles you can ski in a day, but you build this canoe and we're going to call you fruitcake. <laughs> <laughs> so I ripped these 18 foot long planks of wood with my chainsaw. And then after that, I start using a, a hatchet and um, an ax 
and a hammer and a hand plane. I start ripping these beautiful little thin 18 foot long planks of wood. And I start hand planing them five days a week, five hours a day. And the Athabascans are coming by and they're saying fruitcake, you know, and the kids are going fruitcake, emulating this. And we had a great rapport. We absolutely loved each other. I loved them. They loved me. We all got a kick out of each other. And I think we really spiced up each other's days. And there's two huge things that happened during this period. One was the children came up to me finally when I started and they looked at me and they said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm building a canoe like you guys have done for thousands of years. And they had never seen a canoe built. And I realized that I was watching and witnessing the end of their culture mm. as we knew it. And that just, just struck my heart. I just thought, this is horrific. And, you know, and what I saw, and there's there's a difference in, let's say, the Athabascans versus the Yupik Eskimo. The Athabascans passed on some of their traditions, but not most of them. And the children were reject- rejecting them anyway. They wanted to be modernized. Whereas the Yupik further on down river were actually much better at passing on their traditions. But I realized that what comes with this loss of tradition, what comes with this loss of roots and knowing, and I identify with as an adopted person, is that I was looking for my coordinates. I wanted to know where did I come from, where am I, and where am I going? And without it, I have to tell you, it was not until I later on found my family that I was really much more reckless, right? I just like I just felt like I was disconnected to everything around me. And with this loss of roots and connection and heritage comes depression and loss of sense of self and addiction and alcoholism and that recklessness and suicide and death. And Jill, it was not uncommon at all for me to travel down the river. And I was always looking for, you know, these little dots on the, on the, on the map where these little villages would be. And I was always getting very excited to go to the next village and the next village. But Time and time again, I'd get to a village and there'd be this dot on the map. The only thing that remained of the village was the cemetery on the hill. And basically, most of these villages were taken out by alcoholism. And I see that today in society. And that is that is a big part of my campaign is to reconnect us to those roots and to reconnect that intergenerational connection that we so desperately need. So, as I'm making this canoe... And they're passing by going, fruitcake, right? Um, after two and a half weeks of hand planing, I was, as told to do, I was submerging these planks of wood, fine, narrow, very pliable planks of wood into the local muskrat pond. And after two and a half weeks, I lay them at my feet and I'm ready to assemble. And this is when I see the most beautiful insight into our humanity. And that is when I began to assemble the ribs and the railing, all of a sudden, they stop by and, and, and they're no longer saying fruitcake. And instead, the Athabascans are coming by saying, I have a sea clamp if you need a sea clamp for that. Mm. And then someone else came by saying, I got some galvanized screws if you need some. And then someone else came by saying, I got some oil-based marine paint. You like blue and red. And I saw this beautiful transition and this insight on, into our humanity. And I realized how we work as, as a race and how to inspire. And that had such a huge impact on my style of leadership as a my vice mayor, mayor, city council member in Nevada City. I realized that we can talk and share all the platitudes and even the blueprints. But the truth is, is that when somebody sees you doing something in the physical, they'll drop whatever they're doing and they want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. That is exciting to them. That is enticing to them. They want to be part of that movement forward. And so that's how I've been leading. And that's what this whole gubernatorial campaign is with California is that it supersedes just an election cycle. It's it's like, no, we're jumping into action. This is going to be a purpose-driven four years. So I finished that canoe. It took me three and a half weeks to build it. I waited for the river to break up. I was in that village for over two months waiting for the, the the river to break up and clean out of all the trunks, you know, tree trunks and icebergs and everything else. And then I paddled and I made it 900 miles in 11 days. I averaged uh, 75 miles a day. And then the journey was over. And I thought that the story was done. And then two years later, I'm now 30. And this is where I'm ready to get my mind blown. I pick up my search to find my mother and I find her and I find that she had died when I, around the time I started to look for her. And I also find out that my adoptive mother had, you know, given me a little white lie, which was my name was not Marcella Anderson. It was actually Marcella Funston. And my mother's name was Jane Funston. And we had a wild 
I have a wild great-grandfather. It was her grandfather, General Frederick Funston. If you're in San Francisco, there's a Fort Funston and a Funston Avenue. And he's very well known for the 1906 earthquake taking control of the city and dynamiting a fire break and, and, and declaring martial law and so on. So when I'm talking to my natural half-brother, because it ends up we had the same mother, and I tracked him down, he says to me, now, Renette, when you did your trip across Alaska, of course, that was after you found out our great-grandfather had done that, right? And I thought he was completely confused. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm talking about Alaska. I crossed Alaska. He goes, I know. He goes, our great-grandfather did that too. And I'm thinking, man, you're, you're so wrong. He goes, no, there's a Smithsonian Magazine May 89 edition that talks about his life and that Alaska trip. Well, I'm living by UCLA at the time. It's 1994. Wait, actually, no, 1996. I head right up to the, the library at UCLA. Within a half hour's time, I had that magazine in my hand and my whole entire world's ready to go upside down. And I find out my great-grandfather had been hired by the USDA the USDA Department of Agriculture to go up to Alaska and do collect botanical samples to find out what was up there. So he did not have the luxury that I had to actually fly into the headwaters of the Yukon. He had to get there by foot. So he started, it was a two-year trip, not like mine, four, four months and six days. He, he ended up starting his trip on April 10th. I'm reading, oh my gosh, April 10th, my birthday. Wow, what a coincidence. That's crazy. Of course. And I continue to read, right? And oh, he skied down the, the Yukon River. Oh, so did I. And, oh, he shot and killed a sled dog to eat because he was starving. And I'm thinking, that's crazy because I, I snowshoed down the Yukon River. Right? And, and I saved a sled dog from being shot and killed. And, and then my great-grandfather with two buddies had cut down three trees and built an 18-foot-long canoe. And I'm thinking, well, that's crazy because I cut down three trees and I built an 18-foot-long canoe. And then my great-grandfather by himself paddled down the rest of the Yukon River. And when he got into the Delta close to the Bering Sea, he flipped his canoe, lost a lot of botanical samples and, and photographs, not all, but a lot. And when I built my canoe, I put little stabilizers on them. Well, he did his trip in 1894. I did my trip in 1994. He was 27, turned 28 along the way. And I was 27, and I turned 28 along the way. And his, his whole entire Yukon trip was 1,500 miles, and so was mine. And Jill, I kept rereading and rereading this article, thinking to myself, I, this is mathematically impossible. This can't be real. And then I started thinking to myself, who is this Fred Funston? So obviously, right, all arrows in my life were pointing at Fred Funston, learn who this guy is. And I began to learn that he was the highest ranked military official in the country at the time of his death. He had patented Pershing, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and actually, I thought MacArthur under his command, but MacArthur was just a very dear friend. And he was overseeing Pershing as he had him pursue Pancho Villa along the Mexican-American border when he would drop dead of a massive heart attack. He was to lead us into the Great War, known as World War I. Well, he put the whole entire nation into shock. Pershing took his place. And then my great-grandfather disappeared, you know, in the shadows of these World War I heroes. And yet, you know, he would be dead for 100 years, and here I come along. And yet he had done all these things. He was very much, he, Carnegie and Rockefeller, or sorry, Roosevelt were very much about this new thing called American imperialism, about white man's burden, about really taking over as much as they possibly could of the planet to westernize the whole world. And, and he did some amazing feats. He did some amazing things, but there's also this trail of genocide and destruction along the way. And so I began to see, I'm like, well, wait a second. Here it is a hundred years later. And I'm still dealing with, with his actions. And, and did he have any idea that here his great-granddaughter, 100 years later, who didn't even know her name, would still be dealing with his actions? And I started thinking to myself, well, wait a second. What am I leaving behind? And what's my legacy going to be? And obviously, long after my, I'm gone, the impacts of my actions are going to continue and continue and continue. And I say, we also, always talk about the proverbial throwing a pebble in the pond and the ripples. Well, I think we're more the ripple than we are the pebble. And that's when I started thinking, oh, my Lord, what are we leaving behind? And that's when I started to get into, like, wanting to make a better world. And, and that was the beginning of my community work. Mm. I mean, just I had heard a snippet of that story, and I thought it was amazing. 
I mean, thank you for sharing all of that detail. That is the most glorious story. It is so juicy. You know, you have to write a book one day. I mean, you you have. I'm halfway to. through. I'm, I'm halfway through. I actually, hope to have it done by summer. Yeah, yeah not be, just because of the story, but you are such a great storyteller. I mean, I was right there with you every step of the way. Oh, I, I just can't wait to read the book. Uh, so, will you explain? to all of us what the seventh generation principle is and how that relates to what you just shared. So I've been on the city council. I've served two terms, two-time mayor, ready to serve my third term. And I stepped down in July of 2020 because of what I was seeing behind the scenes, behind the closed doors. And I was seeing a lot of red flags that people were not privy to. And I was disturbed by this. So I stepped down and decided I was going to start doing interviews to bring different experts in the respective fields uh, so that I could just spread the word and let people know, hear from epidemiologists and virologists and OSHA experts and so on. So people could be more informed. They were not getting the information they should have. And then I was on a show called Del Big Trees, The High Wire. And when that happened, people asked me, you know, hey, you should run for governor. I, I was like, I have absolutely no interest in running for governor ever. But I continued to watch the lack of leadership in the state of California. And nobody was questioning you know, the emperor with no clothes, right? And nobody was questioning the narrative, nobody. And I was getting more and more angry going, this is awful. And then I had people saying, run for governor. And my response to that was absolutely not, it's never going to happen. And then I started thinking to myself, well, wait a second. You know, I've been sharing this story about my crossing Alaska through a one woman show I've been doing for nearly 30 years now. And I thought that was, that was what I was supposed to do was to share the story. And then I realized, wait a second, I actually think that I need to actualize it. Mm. I actually think that I need to actually really like put it into motion. So I said to the folks who were asking me to run for governor, look at this governor thing. If you guys are willing to do something extraordinary, if you're willing to do something that's never been done before, I'm game. But I'm not going to do more of the same. You've got other candidates for that. And this I know is going to take over my whole entire life. And I'm willing to give it. But it's going to be for something extraordinary. And these are the two requirements. First, no party affiliation, because I cannot serve the people and a party simultaneously as it currently stands. Both parties are equally taken over by big dark money. And the most important thing is, is that I want it based upon the seventh generation principle, which is every decision we make today should serve seven generations from now. And the reason why that I wanted that to be the base of the platform is as an activist who's been in the trenches for 20 years, and I have been a community activist, and even as mayor and, and, and city council member, uh, we didn't get paid, paid. It was all volunteer, right? This is, this is just my outpouring of my heart. And doing all this good work. And yet, over the years, I was watching the world and California and my community backsliding and backsliding. And I was thinking, why Why is our constitution not holding water? Why are we not able to maintain and, and do well and keep vibrant, you know? And and I started looking at the constitution. And I realized, wait a second, there's, there's some missing pieces to the story. And I'm very, very uh, sensitive to historical revisionism. That's happened a lot with my great-grandfather. It's happened a lot in my life. And I, I just want the truth. I'm always seeking the truth. So... I realized with the U.S. Constitution that people don't realize it was actually inspired by the Six Nations of the Iroquois Confederacy, right? The indigenous people inspired our Constitution. And most recently, I actually found out, somebody told me that, no, no, it goes beyond that. Benjamin Franklin, one of our forefathers, actually spent seven years of his life with the Iroquois. Oh and gosh. they were collaborating on helping write this Constitution. People don't know that. But there's some fatal flaws to this incredible vessel, which is every vessel must have the anchor and the compass. The compass is that seven generation principle, right? You're always heading towards that shore of the seven generation, always keeping them in mind in your, in your decision making. That is the metrics, the measurement of your leadership. The anchor are our elders. We do not lock them away in nursing homes and forget them like they're a product. We actually include them in the decision making. And what they do is they pull upon the wisdom of the last few generations to ensure for the next seven generations. And instead, we've locked them away. And here we are, just like those children who did not know how to build, build a canoe. They had lost their way. And that has repercussions. We are suffering the same story, right? We're suffering the same here in America. So I want to connect that those intergenerations, and I want us to also heal. So what we did is when I said I want my gubernatorial campaign to be based on this, they're like, okay, let's do it. So to get it going in October of 20, 2020, I read Newt Gingrich's A Contract with Americans. I read rapper Ice Cube's Contract with Black Americans to kind of get a, a feel on what they think everybody needs. 
Yeah. Right. And then I looked at America and we said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to take the biggest threats facing California and we're going to transmute them into the biggest opportunities. So we built this blueprint and it's an economy based upon restoration and healing. If I'd mentioned this two, three years ago, people would be like, what? We don't want that. And now they're hungry for it. What does that mean? We're looking at rebuilding our topsoil. Topsoil is absolutely paramount in recovering and restoring the balance in nature and our earth, bringing back the rain, ensuring we have water going into the aquifer, making sure we have nutritionally dense food, right? Um, Actually helping the pollinators. There's so many benefits to soil. So rebuilding the topsoil. And and excuse me, Renette, I would like to just interject one thing. I read somewhere, is this true, that China is buying up the topsoil? Well, what I actually found out was we did have, I had a a woman from a farming family say, Renette, somewhere along the the eastern slopes of the Sierras in California, there's China, you know, China's buying a lot of farmland across all the United States, as well as Bill Gates. And there's now legislation, I think in 14 different states are trying to stop this. But what she told me is like, nobody knows this, but China has all this land along the eastern slopes of the Sierras. And they're literally digging out three feet of, of the topsoil, the top three feet and sending it to China. And I was like, what are you talking to? Yeah, I said, what are you talking about? Yeah, they're just taking the topsoil and they're shipping it back to China. I can't believe it. So it's just craziness, right? So, and they're coming after our farmland in California. They're coming after our water. A war is being waged upon our farmers and our water. And they're crushing them, accusing them as being the, the biggest water users. And it's not true. They're not. There's other big water users. Uh, it's not the farmers. They're just using that as an excuse to squeeze the farmers to come in, oh. scoop them up pennies on the dollar. It's total war. Okay, so now we're looking at expanding regenerative farming, right? Closing that that loop, right? Making it as healthy as possible. Also, ensuring our legacy farms and ranches are there for generations to come. And then, of course, bringing back things like common sense education, where children know how to use their hand, make, make things, fix things, you know how to do electrical work, right? Mechanical work, construction, so on. It, you know, all these different things. Um, a little cursive writing. How about some music and some art? How about art? some cursive like, writing? I love it. Wouldn't that be lovely? And so bringing back common sense. And the other thing is, and this is really key because this might sound really pie in the sky, like, how are you going to do this? But I, I'm, I'm idealistic and I, I can have some pretty lofty ideas, but I'm also very rooted and based in reality too. And I know how to get things done. I'm a, I'm a person who gets my hands in things and I'm, I'm a workhorse. Oh, are I'm, you really? I, I would not <laughs> guess that. In case you're wondering... And so I was looking around going, okay, we need a public bank in the state of California. We need to be in control of how we lend and what we loan money to. And we're going to jumpstart this economy. And then I found out after looking at South Dakota's incredible, successful public bank that California has a public bank and nobody knows about it. It's called an infrastructure bank known as the iBank and it is for infrastructure loans for bridges and levees and overpasses and so on. It's underutilized. It's essentially used as a slush fund for politicians' pet projects, and nobody knows about it. I'm like, okay, we're going to take that, and we're going to expand on it, and we're going to improve upon it. So first and foremost, there's a lot of caps with these these loans, like $50 million, $25 million. That's not much for infrastructure jobs. We need to raise the, the caps. But then this is the most important thing, is instead of us going to the big banks and Wall Street to get these loans, right, at 5%, 8%, 10%, what we can do is we can start loaning money right? Two, all the businesses that have shuttered over the years, the mom and pop businesses, the main street businesses, the farmers. And what we do is we create a measurement that the more regenerative, right? The more restorative you are, the more you support these, this regenerative, restorative healing economy, the less interest rate you pay. So we could actually go out there and actually only charge a quarter percent interest, right? To and, and actually incentivize, not mandate, not force or will, but to incentivize the farmers to transition into regenerative farming, into permaculture and so on. We can jumpstart our small, mid, large range uh, manufacturing. And the beautiful thing about this, Jill, is that by us not going to the big banks and having to pay five, eight, 10% interest, we are, California loses hundreds of millions of dollars every year, hundreds of millions of dollars leave the state of California. And instead, we, the Infrastructure Bank of California, print the dollars ourselves, and we keep all that money in California circulating around our local and regional economies. That's the best thing you could do. Jill, the only reason why it's not happening, the only reason why we're not recovering is the leadership or the lack thereof. The leaders are perfectly happy from what I can tell 
my firsthand experience out in the trenches as a citizen, as a person who's been behind the scenes, seeing in Sacramento, seeing behind the, the Zoom calls to the officials during COVID, somebody's getting some marching orders from I don't know where, but it seems their objective is to absolutely destroy California and crush us from the inside out. And they're happy because somebody's getting a lot of money from this, from the, home, the rise of homelessness to the destruction of mom and pop businesses to uh, being told we don't have the water. We have plenty of water. It's because of the misallocation. The water is being robbed from us, right? So we have everything we need. What we're, miss- what we're missing is the leadership. Man, oh man. This is so eye-opening. I mean, it's just, it's hard to even hear some of what you just shared. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine knowing everything that you know that's going on. I just want to know when you're running for president. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jill, don't get ahead of yourself. One <laughs> step at a time. <laughs> you're such a gift and we are behind you. And I'm so grateful to have crossed paths with you, truly. And I will be talking about you nonstop. I will. And And how can we help those of us who don't live there? How can we help what you're doing? Because what you are doing there is going to affect all of us. Um, but if, or if someone just thinks, okay, she's a badass, I need her to win. How can we help? Well, you know, you do, I tell people, even if they move from California, you still want to invest in the front line of this war because you do not want California to fail. And so there's a few things we can do. I'm highly censored. In fact, Instagram took down my official campaign Instagram site uh, back in January and my hashtags are censored and I'm throttled on social media, all these different things. So this is a word of mouth campaign. We're telling everyone to go out there and everywhere you go, talk this up. Talk If you're somewhere else in the United States or the world, talk to anybody, everybody you know in California. If you're in California, you do the same thing. This is a word of mouth campaign. Spread the word. Go on to elect Renette. And that is E-L-E-C-T, elect Renette, R-E-I-N-E-T-T-E, electrenet.com. You'll see the 30-page contract with Californians. It's a blueprint. I'm the only candidate who's ever proposed something like this ever as a candidate, like a white paper, like this is the blueprint out of this mess. Read it. Do know there's a second iteration that's even far, far, far more powerful. We have tapped into that collective genius that I so believe in and love. And so the second iteration is even much, much better, much, much stronger. But you read the first iteration, you'll, you'll get a gist of what we're doing. Spread the word, tell everybody. And yes, we do need money, $10, $5, $100. You can, you can donate as much as $32,400 if you want to. <laughs> but we need to, you know, we're, what we're doing, Jill, is pennies on the dollar compared to the bigger candidates. But I have to tell you this, nobody owns us. That's why I'm saying I'm here to, yeah, to serve the, the many, not the money. And, and we're doing this in such a way where I can be sovereign and I can actually represent the people on the planet. And we are trying to create a, a template a model for other states and other nations. This supersedes politics. This is really creating a cultural shift within California itself. Yes, it is. And and everyone listening, you know, wherever you live, let's say you're in the U.S. and you live in Indiana, like I do. If you think, oh, I could never do that, or you don't, you've never been mayor, you've never, you know someone who will hear this and say, okay, enough's enough. We're sick of the politicians who are bought and paid for we want truth. Everything she stands for, I, I truly, I think you do too. I truly believe everyone stands for what you stand for. It's just who's willing to admit that and who isn't, who, right, who has sold out and who has. And I think most people, you're so refreshing. It has been so extreme what's been happening that I think so many people are waking up and saying, okay, we were, we were complaining and we're waiting for someone like you to stand up and you did. And I'm so grateful. Now it's on us. Now it's on us. We've got to make the leap. I tell people, stop voting for a different wing of the same bird. If you vote for Democrat or Republican right now in California, you're guaranteed a Newsom 2.0. And it's now or it's Newsom. It's that simple. It's now or it's Newsom. Mm, I love that. If you don't change it now, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be a hard four years. If you think the last two years are hard, wait till the next four. We've got to do the right thing. We've got to serve the children who have not even had the chance to walk on this beautiful planet mm. yet. And even though that's, it's really a great time to close, I have to add one thing. You heard Renette just say, and we said it quickly because I'm not surprised by what she said and she's living it. But some of you either maybe didn't hear it or you're not sure if you heard it right, that her campaign has been censored. That statement alone, it will be shocking to some people. They either won't believe it or they're like, did I hear that right? Let's just, just can we just take a few minutes? 
and just digest that. Like, first of all, why is that happening? Right. Right. And the media is not covering the fact that in two weeks here in California, the ballots go out. Nobody knows there's a primary. And this is really fascinating. It's important. To str- this is everywhere. What we've discovered with the primaries is that you have these two different elections, the primary in June and then the general in the November. What I've discovered, and it is a rule of thumb, and I am experiencing this, Jill, is that unlike what we're being told, 80% of the people agree with 90% of the issues. 80% of the people agree with 90% of the issues, and I'm experiencing that. But what happens in the primaries here in California Nobody knows about it. They don't think it's important. So the most extreme on either side, left and right, vote in the primary. And they get the top two vote getters. And those two extreme candidates then go to basically the runoff in November. And what happens is you have 80% of the people who are just kind of your common people who all agree with most everything are like, wait a second, these two candidates, I don't relate to them and they don't represent me. And I'm just going to vote for the lesser of two evil. So... We've got to stop that. We've got to vote for the actual primary. You're, every Californian's getting a ballot. Whether you want one or not, it's being mailed to you. Hold on to it. Do not put it back in the mail. You fill it out. And then on election day on June 7th, you go down to your polling place and you drop it in then. And, and, and I tell people, and they're like, well, what if the election is fraudulent? I'm like, you know what? This campaign supersedes politics. We're here to create a cultural shift in how we show up in our own leadership, in our own lives, in our own community. That's what this is about. So I'm just telling everyone, vote like your lives depend upon it. Vote in the primary because your lives really do and that of your children's lives. They do. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. This has been my pleasure and my honor and we are absolutely on your side. Thank you, Jill. What a pleasure. You're just amazing human soul and, and just thank you for being who you are. You're incredible. Thank you so much. 